T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Welcome to another episode of Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. I'm Jeremy Scheinwald, and with me is my co-host. Miles Lassiter. How you doing, Miles? Wonderfully. <laughs> Good. Uh, and, uh, and we're here with a, a wonderful uh, interview with Dan Porter. Um, before that, maybe we'll refresh your, because we're only in the sep- second episode here, we'll refresh your, your memories of who we are. Uh, I am a, uh, I'm an avid bootstrapping uh, entrepreneur. Uh, I built my, my own um, portfolio of companies. Uh, you can check it out under missiondrivengroup.com. Um, and I've been a committed member of the VFA community uh, since its inception several years ago, uh, first as a board member and now as the head of the New York uh, Entrepreneurial Board. And I'm Miles Lassiter. I'm a committed entrepreneur. Uh, started two companies so far, uh, both venture-backed, so a slightly different experience. And I, uh, I've been on the Venture for America board and really enjoying being a part of this community and very excited about this podcast as well. Yeah, and, and the diversity between Miles and I is hopefully uh, hopefully going to be indicative of the of the diversity on the show. We're hoping to have all all uh, types of entrepreneurs, from bootstrappers to venture back to um, all different industries, etc. So we're hoping you're going to hear some some really fascinating stories. And we know uh, that you heard one last episode, and and uh, and with this one as well. I mean. Dan Porter um, is uh, is a remarkable entrepreneur. You're going to hear his story um, in, a, in a moment. He uh, he is he's now started. He's now um, leading Tally, and he's um, the head of digital at uh, at William Morris Endeavor. Um, but before that, he was among other things. Uh, he was the president. He was a teacher and president of of, uh, of Teach for America, uh, on which Venture America is partially based. Um, he had a career that took him through. Um, it took him through Bertelsmann. It took him through Virgin. Um, but really, I think he's he's particularly well known for for OMG Pop, where the company that that um, that launched Draw Something uh, a video. I don't don't think anyone needs an introduction to it because it it uh, completely took over everyone's mobile phones uh, for quite some time. Uh, and um, and he's going to tell us the story of uh, of how he got uh, from being a teacher to uh, being a, an, a well-known and uh, uh, you know quite successful entrepreneur. I think some of the takeaways that people can have from this episode and listen for this is how humble he is and how he didn't have it all figured out from the beginning. So I, ho- I hope that offers uh, some glimpse for people that you don't have to know day one and you can still have a very successful career. Absolutely, and I would say how just intelligent and articulate he is, and how that probably just. You know, pervades uh, you know all of his interactions and and uh, and enables him to be successful. Um, so that that as well was uh, was was meaningful to me. Well, let's jump right in. So Dan, thanks for being here. I uh, did a little uh, I did a little reading up on you before uh, before the recording here. I know that you're uh, the child of two professors, correct, and a teacher yourself. 
Former teacher. Former teacher yourself, okay. And you took, uh, so I'm curious how, what that, you know, how you deviated from that path. You started on a path towards education and was entrepreneurship in the back of your mind or was it something that, that found you at some point? I grew up obviously in a very academic environment which was great for curiosity and learning. I could learn anything and was exposed to lots of things but was not so good for knowing anything about the world outside of academia. I didn't know anything about business. I didn't know anything about anything besides that. So when I graduated from college, I really had almost no clue what I wanted to do. Uh, I ended up working in the music industry because I really liked music and I had gone to school for music. Realized that wasn't for me. And completely on a whim, a friend of mine had said, oh, there's a teacher shortage in New York City, and this was late 1980s. Uh, we're all going to go teach. Do you want to do that? And I had never volunteered, never taught, never worked with kids. And I thought this is like a perfect match for my skills, obviously. Um, and it just seemed like random and fun. So I said yes. And in August 1989, I walked around to 25 schools all across New York. And I got to the last school. And I, the principal walked in and she said, you have a great smile, you're hired. And I said, you don't really know anything about me. And she said, well, we have a teacher. And she was also the softball coach and the other team sadly attacked her after a game and she's on permanent leave and I need a warm body and that's you. Uh, and that was my introduction to teaching, which ended up, I taught at uh, Clara Barton High School in Crown Heights in Brooklyn and that was super fun and interesting, and I loved the kids, and I learned a lot. And simultaneously, Teach for America started, and I had a friend who was one of the first employees, and he called me, and he said, we're launching Teach for America. You should come work with us. You've been a teacher. I said, well, I've, I've, you know, I've been a teacher for 10 months. Um, but that was 10 months more than some of the other people who were engaged. So I started working at Teach for America, and... I was very motivated and passionate because I had experienced the same type of thing myself inside the classroom. But the reality is over the four and a half years that I worked there from doing a lot of things to running all and designing all the initial recruitment and selection to eventually being the president of Teach for America, I realized that as passionate as I was about education uh, and my parents obviously and my grandfather very excited that I was working in the family business. Uh, what I really liked was the whole entrepreneurial side, the idea that you could come in, have a problem, sit around with a bunch of people, come up with an idea, and just do it. Uh, and I think it took me a while to process that that was something that was separate, this whole kind of idea around building something and creating something uh, was separate from just the idea of education. And for me, you know, I was like a frustrated rock and roll star. I was like, I had long hair. I was convinced I was going to be the next great Jewish rock star. I played the guitar. Uh, and when that wasn't in the cards, I felt like, you know, there goes my opportunity to do something creative in the world. And I think over the time of working at Teach for America and kind of understanding what it's like to create a company, whether it's a nonprofit or profit out of nothing, I realized like there was so much creativity involved that it kind of, you know, scratched the same itch as playing the guitar or playing the piano did for me. So that's a long-winded way of kind of saying how I randomly kind of got into entrepreneurship, but it fit with a lot of things that I was interested in. So you were president of Teach for America and then transitioned from there into the business world. Is that right? Eventually, I ran a, a nonprofit after that, and then I uh, had applied to business school 
and was admitted and in the end couldn't go through with attending and talked my way into a job in finance because they asked me if I knew how to raise money for a company and I said, I know how to raise money, end of sentence. What I, the rest of the sentence would have said from foundations and individuals for nonprofit endeavors, but I left the end of the sentence off. Um, and so I took this finance job for two years. I didn't know anything. Like, I didn't even know what Excel was. What's out of the business? And so uh, it was kind of like a boutique M&A shop that involved kind of transactions and specialty chemicals business. I Chemistry was definitely my worst subject in, in high school. And asset management roll-ups and various other things like that. Uh, so I called my sister who had gone to Wharton, and she basically was like, just go to Borders for you young people, it's a bookstore that doesn't exist anymore. And buy this book about finance. So I just bought this Barron's book on finance. I would just sit and read it under my desk and try to figure out how it worked. And so I basically, while in the job, taught myself about finance and how to build models and do all that stuff. So it was my business kind of school experience, but I got paid for it. You like putting yourself in these situations where you have to learn in order to perform? I absolutely love putting myself in those situations. I don't think it's for anyone, but I love improvisation and I like learning. And uh, for me, it's probably why I've done so many different things in my career because it's interesting, exciting for me to learn different things. So you did two years in, at, a, at a boutique M&A shop. Yeah. And uh, what was the end of that? Were you just, were you tired of it? Was the learning stop? Was it I think that I realized there were a couple things. One is I realized that money was just a product like razor blades or CDs or anything else like that, uh, which gave me an insight into how it worked. The second is I worked on a deal, and one of the people working on the deal, his wife was giving birth while he was there working on the deal, and I just thought, like, this is so incredibly lame. Why would I ever want to work in an industry where somebody prioritizes the deal over that? Um, and then sartorially, I was really not fit for it. I would wear shorts, and then I would get changed behind my door <laughs> into suit. And uh, I think I just understood. It was like you would study finance after finance, finance, and then everything would come down to six times EBITDA, basically, on every deal. Um, so I was like, I understand that. It's time to go do something else. Got it. So then something else was ticket web after that? Yeah. So I uh, I had a, a roommate who had built kind of the prototype web-based software for ticketing. At that time, all ticketing was run kind of on these terminals. Like you would go into Tower Records and there was a big $25,000 machine You may have there. to explain what a record store is. Yeah, so. exactly. Um, hooked up to, I think, like an ISDN line or something like that, or a Watts line. And uh, it just seemed like a great opportunity, and they thought I knew a lot about finance um, when, you know, I knew six times EBITDA, basically. Uh, and it just seemed like a cool opportunity. So I moved to uh, San Francisco with uh, my wife and my young son, and there were three of us, and we started, and we basically grew the company up into about $75 million of ticket revenue. And all the investment banks came to us and they said, you need to go public. This is going to be huge. This is what happens in the dot-com revolution. And I said, we're in a market where our leading competitor, Ticketmaster, has some outrageously high percentage of the market. It really doesn't seem that feasible to go public. And they're like, nobody says they don't want to go public. And I just 
didn't make any sense to me. And over time, we eventually sold the company to Ticketmaster. But it was a great entrepreneurial experience. I don't know if you can say, but was it for six-time EBITDA? Uh, <laughs> there was very little. There was mostly negative EBITDA. There's no EBITDA to speak so of. So it might have been negative six times negative EBITDA. <laughs> um, so, uh, and it ended up being a great experience. I mean, we grew this whole company uh, I learned when I moved to San Francisco, we had one car, and so my wife had that car, so I got a ride every day with the CTO from San Francisco to uh, Berkeley and then to Emeryville, where our office was. And every day in the car ride there and back, I would just pepper him with questions about technology, how does database work, how's the structure, how do you call the database, and that's basically how I learned about technology. So it sounds like like fortuity had a, had a big role in your life here. You know, a roommate, uh, some friends going to going to become teachers, etc. It's Is either fortune or I just optimized a, 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 along the lines of the incredibly infinitesimally small number of opportunities that I had and made the best of them. Got it. Okay. I was very look. I didn't know what I wanted to do, so I was open to anything basically, and I was like, "That's cool. I'll make the best of that." Right. So was that so? So this is this is late '90s. You saw mm-hmm. Ticket Web. It was that was that uh, was that boom the same as as uh, as what are the differences between that environment and this environment we're in right now? Um, that environment was. I remember we went over to visit the office of Evite. You remember Evite, and they had raised thirty million dollars, I think, and we had raised three million dollars. And we were selling tens of millions of dollars of tickets and they were making no revenue. And I just remember thinking like, oh my God, the goal is to make no revenue because then you're worth a lot more than if you make any money. The other insight, it's not six times EBITDA. Yeah, if you have no EBITDA, yeah, then exactly. it's any, any multiple. Um, and I think at that time, one of the biggest differences was nobody had any experience at anything, right? Like here I was a guy in nonprofit. I was moderately articulate and pretty good at managing people. And there was opportunity for me because you were just looking for people who were competent, but there were also 22-year-old vice presidents of this and that. And I think now, you know, 15 years later, we go through our ups and downs, and there are companies that people think are worth a lot of money that are, might not be. But there's so much more experience in the market, and there's so many people who have lived through various kind of uh, ups and downs, who understand how to acquire users and stuff like that. Uh, and, you know, there was a lot of optimism back then. We're going to sell 200-pound bags of pet food online, and people are going to buy them, and we're going to have TV commercials that advertise them. And sometimes you see that, but I think the op- you know the optimism is so different now just because the proliferation of devices and the penetration of technology into people's lives. I mean, I remember when we were in the ticketing business, I had to go to clubs and order a DSL line, which then they would pull in there and hook up a terminal so that they could sell tickets. And now broadband is so ubiquitous that it's just a completely different environment. So when you sold TicketWeb, uh, then what, what next? Uh, after we sold TicketWeb, they gave us a great offer to uh, stay and I just thought like I'm gonna sell like 20 more companies like this is just magic Uh, and so I think I lasted for six months Uh, many of the people who sold ended up financially doing very very well but I just thought like you know I got the touch now this is easy peasy Um, was it more fun than being a rock star (laughs) Uh, it was different fun, I, I guess. 
Uh, but luckily, my office mate at Ticketmate, TicketWeb, also played the guitar, so we had at least hour-long jam sessions every afternoon, mostly around extended versions of the Grateful Dead song, Bertha. Um, but... Uh, so I got involved in another company, another endeavor, and uh, I had learned so much and this and that, and then uh, 9-11 happened, and it just crushed the entire business. I mean, nobody felt like investing. Nobody felt like putting more money into companies. And, you know, you've got to be willing to support a company and believe and lose money for a long time to get something off the ground. So it was just as I had kind of changed my career for the third time, that whole kind of career path disappeared. And so and that's when you ended up at Virgin? I, I came back to New York and I ended up working at Bertelsmann at the uh, 12 CDs for a Penny Music Club uh, where I ran the corporate development. And uh, that was an interesting experience working for, you know, a 100,000 plus multinational corporation uh, where, number one, you can come up with a lot of new ideas, but when a company is so big, you're never going to make a revenue difference on any of those types of ideas. And we had bought CD Now, and we were going to look towards the future. And the the best part of that job was uh, the iPod had not yet come out, and it was rumored that Apple was going to do something with the iPod. And so my boss says to me, well, you worked in Silicon Valley. Call up Steve Jobs and tell him we want to do something with the iPod. And I thought, you know, gosh, you know, I can't let these people down now. So uh, I tried to get in touch with Steve Jobs. I did, you know, Steve at Apple.com, Jobs, S. Jobs, Steve period Jobs. Finally, I ended up sending him a number of faxes because there were still faxes back then. In any hopes, please talk to us. We're Bertelsmann. We're a large music company and this and that. Uh, and, you know, they'd ask me every week, did you hear back from Steve yet? And I'd say, oh, you know, we're waiting on it. He's, his office said he's going to get back to me. And then one day, randomly, I was at my desk, and the phone rang. And I picked it up, and I said, hello. And he said, this is Steve Jobs. Why are you sending me all these faxes? I'm so not interested in working with you. Goodbye. <laughs> and then I came back to my boss and said, look, I had a long talk with Steve. He just doesn't want to work with us. I tried to tell him, you know, everything, and it just didn't work out. So that was about my biggest takeaway from that that job, a- along with the fact that everybody would tell me, oh, when I was in college, you know, I would order, you know, 11 CDs for a penny and give the wrong address all the time. And I'd say, I know, it's baked into the financial model from the beginning. So. Second podcast, second mention of the fax machine playing prominently. This is, yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, the good thing about that job is it was really a user acquisition-based business, and uh, we actually competed back then in 2005 with Netflix, who was spending $30 to acquire a user. So I really, every job I learned something different, and I really learned a tremendous amount about, you know, lifetime value and CPA and all of those other things like that. So... So then, so from Bertelsmann, that's when you moved to, to Virgin? That's when I moved to Virgin. Virgin is my single and only example of ever getting a job through a headhunter. Okay. Um, and often headhunters would call me and they would look at my resume and they'd be like, there's no consistent story to anything that you've done, so I can't really help you. Uh, and in this case, uh, they said, are you interested? And I was like, Virgin, like Richard Branson Virgin? Sure. And I remember I went to the office and there was a... British woman who was a receptionist and she had a British accent. There was a big red sign with Virgin and I was like, I need to work here. 
So that's uh, the power of brand. That's really that that's is the power. And actually, you know, as much as I learned about you know customer acquisition, Bertel's been working for three years at Virgin. Uh, I learned a tremendous amount about brand, basically, and just in depth. And there was a lot of thought around the Virgin brand. Richard had his own brand that was tracked in parallel and differently from the Virgin brand. Um, and you know, at that time in in the UK, Virgin was in so many businesses you know, finance and cars and wines and all of these other things like that. And I think there was some, you know, in the U.S. we had to be very careful and thoughtful about kind of what the Virgin brand meant and where we could pursue opportunities. So what was your portfolio? What was your uh, job responsibilities? So we, in before I joined, there had been a lot of appetite and interest in starting new companies for Virgin in North America, and the largest and most successful one was Virgin Mobile, which was a partnership with Sprint. Uh, and Virgin had had a lot of success in mobile and in the UK. And we really focused on kind of a broad range of digital businesses and businesses that we thought would extend the brand. So uh, we made a number of investments. We were involved in private aviation. We were involved uh, in Pick'em, which was a peer-to-peer betting site. Uh, and at some point, kind of the brand research came back and it said, there are lots of people in the US who are unfamiliar with Virgin or think Virgin is still a record label, even though the record label was sold in 1994. And Virgin had a very successful music festival in the UK and we decided to bring it to the US. And so uh, I literally started with me sitting at my desk saying, we're gonna launch this music festival. And I felt like I had some contacts from being in the ticketing business. And we eventually launched it in outside of the DC area and then in Vancouver and in Toronto. Um, and, you know, had tens of thousands of people come to listen to The Who and Kanye and stuff like that. Um, and it was positive for the brand. And we kept thinking, how can we launch more businesses that are kind of grow the Virgin brand? And at that time, I think it was the first, like in the mid 2000s, you would start to read this stuff where it would say, like, the video game business is actually bigger than Hollywood. And, you know, my kids were younger and all they wanted to do was play on their Nintendo DS and other things like that. And I started to think, like, maybe we should do something in the video game space because maybe that's going to be more brand resonant for Virgin. And, you know, investigating that and thinking about that on behalf of Virgin ultimately actually led to me leaving in part and taking this job running this kind of video game company. So what's what's day one at at, um, at OMG Pop, which wasn't called that at the beginning? Right. It's called I'm in like with you. Yeah. Uh, until I went into Google Analytics and realized that all the search volume came from misspellings of I'm in like with you and that it probably wasn't the easiest name to tell people on the playground about and spread the word. So I went from working this like amazing office at Virgin with a kitchen and conference rooms and little call booths that look like British phone booths to working on I think 37th Street right above a combination Dunkin' Donuts Taco Bell. So depending on where you stood, you would get a different fragrance. Uh, in a very small room with one window with seven dudes where like both of my knees were touching the knees of the guys next to me on card tables and where there was no cell phone reception in that office. So immediately I started to raise money, but I had to constantly go take the elevator downstairs and go outside to see if anybody had ever called me back and it was freezing as well. So 
uh, it was very different, but for me, very energizing because I had missed that being on the more corporate side, and I knew that was closer to what I wanted to do. And so, you, did you did you have funding when you started, or you were so before I started, uh, a little bit of money had right. been raised, um, and. I, I started, I think, December 1st, and by the, by February, we raised uh, kind of our first round of $5 million. And that's literally, I joined, uh, I built the model, I figured out what our story is, we went out and we raised that money. What was that story? What was the pitch and the dream that you were selling to investors for that first round? At that time, we were really focused on kind of real time and the idea that you could get any number of people on a website playing games live with each other. And a lot of it actually went back to Charles, who was the founder of the company, and his experience sitting in his garage where everybody had their Nintendo and they were all playing live with each other. And this dream, like, what if you could do that everywhere in the world where you could log in and play live? I mean, now it's, you know, now that it exists, you can play Call of Duty on your Xbox through Xbox Live and all this other stuff. But at that time, that really didn't exist. What existed were kind of very single play was poker on the computer or snood or any of these single player games. So, you know, we focus a lot on building this architecture and this experience where people could come together and play with each other live uh, and had a lot of traction on the first game that we released and really kind of flew off that. The irony of all this being that, you know, eventually the end of the story is we sell the company for almost $200 million based on an iPhone game. And yet when we started and raised the money, the iPhone did not even exist. And so it tells you like, you can write the best business plan in the world and tell the best thing, but you know, you're opportunistic based on your situation. You just can't know what the future holds. So did your financial model call for revenue? Had you learned from your time in Silicon Valley that that might not be the highest valuation? We, you know, not only did we not call for revenue, but we had a very visionary and uh, and kind investor, uh, Bijan Sabet at Spark Capital, who invested in both Twitter and Tumblr. So he understood more than anyone else, like, at that time, your goal should be to try to get as many users as possible, both to show traction and because you can take advantage of that audience and to make sure that nobody else got that audience. And, you know, especially if you're in a business that's very advertising driven, if you focus on that so early on at the cost of user experience or retaining users, you can end up kind of kneecapping yourself in some ways. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast, a show about entrepreneurs and their stories. I think I read, and I'm not sure if it's the fellow you mentioned from Spark, but one of your investors said, sort of, we just went with our gut and really loved the team and sort of ignored financials, which seems like it would be fairly counterintuitive for a financial company. Um, what was so special about the team? What did they see? Was the same, Did they see the same things you saw on that team? I think that, for one, you know, the, the people who played the games on our website who loved us, they really loved us. I mean, we, you know, if our user base, you know, was, you know, X, 
the amount of time that they spent on the site was like 100x or some like astronomical number. And the second is it was not a very big team um, and it was a lot of really smart, capable people who were able to create something with a small number of people that reached uh, a lot of people. And I think at that time we knew and everyone else knew that something was going to happen in games. We knew that like in Asia people were spending money on virtual goods and I'll never forget I went to pitch some investors who now are well-known famous investors and the guy says to me you mean people are going to spend money on a virtual thing in a game he's like i just don't get it like i would never do that and i'm thinking you're like a 40 year old guy of course you wouldn't do that like that's not the model and he's just saying like that's never going to happen and now you know it ha- you know it happens anywhere from candy crush to millions of other games um we just didn't know what form it would take or, or how it would take. So in some sense, anyone who invested at that time, whether it was us or Zynga or any other company, was making some bet that technology was going to radically transform gaming. And so your, your role originally was raising money, you said, on that team. And yeah. the, the rest of the team was building the, those games. Right. Were you involved in that process at all? Or, or what did you do once you raised that money? And how did your, how did your role evolve over the time? Right. So I was hired as a CEO. Uh, I was probably 10 years older than everyone else, so they had two candidates. I found out later one was the young guy, one was the old guy. I sadly was the old guy, not the young guy, uh, even though I did not think of myself as an old person. Um, And that was seven years ago, so I must be substantially older now. Um, So my goal was really, I spent a lot of time in the analytics, understanding who our audience was. Uh, I spent a lot of time growing the team. I mean, the very early core team, uh, you know, a bunch of people knew each other, but it it needed to grow beyond that. Um, I spent a lot of time on distribution opportunities. And while I was not a game designer, I didn't know a ton about games. Uh, Every game was essentially a product launch, and you could look at kind of the rough analytics and then look at how people responded and one of the very first things I did was I went and I read 10,000 emails from which were basically on our you know emailed to us at our help email or our support email and it would be anything from like you should ban this guy he's terrible on the site to I hate this game to this crashes for me to anything else like that Um, and I probably replied to a thousand of them and I just kind of immersed myself in, in every aspect of it and eventually um, you know, I did a lot of the design work on the Draw Something game only because I happened to work with all these really talented game designers and had essentially gotten to go to the best game design school in some way by working with these people and by seeing what worked and what didn't work over time. So what was the what was the time span between OMG Pop starting, or I'm in like with you starting, and Draw Something coming out? Was it two so, years? So I... Uh, it was I it, it was four years from when I joined and they were at it for probably a year before I joined so it was probably five years in total and there were probably three people who were still there who were from the you know early team and there were, and there were thirty five releases game releases during that yep, time yeah there were all kinds of there were mobile games eventually there were a lot of web based games we tried to make Facebook games you know it always felt like somehow. You know, at first we were really ahead of the curve, and then everyone was making Facebook games, and we were like, I guess we have to make Facebook games, and then we were behind the curve, and so 
you know, we we took a lot of shots on goal, but what I will say is we developed kind of experientially by succeeding and failing a really intuitive understanding of what worked and what didn't work in games. And so I'll, I'll give you a very specific example. You know, the early version of Draw Something was this game Draw My Thing, and you could log into a website and anybody could draw and anybody could guess. And, you know, there was always the issue that there was one thing that people loved to draw, which was a part of the male anatomy, <laughs> because <laughs> every kid in school and, and people just seem to like to draw that, whether it's on their notebook or in the bathroom stall or in a drawing and guessing game. We are so mature as a species. And, absolutely. And so, you know, when we made the mobile version, everyone says, oh, you know, we've got to figure out how to solve for that. And at some point there was this joke that we had this like optical character recognition technology that would recognize the male anatomy and thus block the game. Um, and I just realized like there's no, you just can't clamp down. It's like music piracy, right? You like try to clamp down and then people find some other way to do it. And it's just, you know, if they're going to do that, they're going to do that. And so in a large part, the design of the game went from being a game that you play with these people that you don't know to a one-to-one -one game that you play with people that you do know. Why? In part because if I'm playing with my friend and he draws something that bothers me, I just say, stop drawing that. Or like, you're not going to draw it because you know me or I stop playing with him. And so you, you use the mechanics of interaction to try to solve it rather than some sophisticated rule set to solve it. And, and there were a lot of things that we tried to solve for that came out in kind of design as opposed to rules that that over time we knew and because we had learned and made a number of these games. So when did you know you had a hit on your hands? Uh, so after we released the game, it was really, it was kind of one of the last things we were ever going to do because we, we were kind of at the end of our financial runway and you know, the board was very supportive and they offered to put more money in. And part of me felt like, look, we made a lot of games. And if we haven't made a hit yet, like maybe we should pack it up. I'm not I'm not really sure. Uh, and so I just really wanted to make a game. And so I was very involved in the game and we released it. And, and at that time in the App Store, it would always show the top 25 on any list. So if you could get to 25, you were essentially on that kind of home screen in the app store where someone was looking. If you were 26, it was like being on the second page of Google, right? You were essentially invisible and nobody saw you. And so I knew that we had this like hardcore fanatical group of players on the site. And I just thought like, if we can get enough of them to all download it on day one. So I spent months and months messaging them and giving them rewards so on day one. We would release it and they would all download the game. And they did, and we made it, I think, to maybe 28 or 27, but we, like, somehow couldn't couldn't get to 25. And I remember, like, Flashlight was right ahead of us, and I was like, damn you, Flashlight app. <laughs> You're ruining my chance of saving the company because uh, I can't get to 25. And then we started to fall, actually, and then we just thought, like, wow, this is, like, totally over. Like, we had this chance, and it seemed like a really fun game. Uh, and then some of the back-end engineers noticed that there was all this friction on the back-end. And to make a long story short, all these people were trying to play the game, and they weren't able to connect, and they weren't able to play the game. And two engineers, one of whom is Jason, 
the other one was Chris, basically stayed for almost 72 hours straight and rewrote it and fixed it. You know, essentially, literally push send, push the new build, and the game just completely exploded. And I had this, uh, we had made this makeshift screen where every time someone downloaded the game, you know, the number would change. And I remember when it got to a thousand downloads and we'd be like, woo, and we'd cheer. And I'd kind of look over it and I'd be like, man, if it ever gets to a thousand and one, that's going to be awesome. Like two hours later, it'd get to a thousand and one. And I think, wow, somebody somewhere in the world finally downloaded our game. And when it exploded, it literally, it went so fast, it was almost illegible. It was kind of surreal. You would just see it and thousands and thousands of downloads would be happening literally every second and at that point it just shot up and then you knew that like there was something special there so it sounds like you were ready to give up on it multiple times uh i think my character flaws i i never give up uh and that applies to like fixing home appliances and and other things like that because i get very stubborn um you know but I recognize how much is in our power. And if, you know, I can't spend any more money or I can't do anything else like that, we felt like it was a really good shot, but we, we kind of had exhausted every possible option. Obviously, what we didn't know is that we did a lot of things right. We just had a technical problem that had held us back. How before that, I mean, you said you guys were down to the end of your funding. Right. Uh, a friend of mine in the, in, the, uh, in the venture community told me I was interviewing you, and he said that you guys were were allegedly at your last day. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but uh, what were some of the scrappy things you were doing to stay afloat? Was there Were there any cutbacks or just like, okay, let's keep this as it's been and just ride it as long as we right. can? Well, I can tell you that we were not at our last day because the company did not qualify for a credit card. So all of the costs of the company went through my personal credit card, which at times was up to $200,000 a month. So you had a lot and of travel points. I, was, I had a lot of travel points. And I was just paranoid that somehow we were going to run out of money and I was going to get stuck with that wow. bill. And so I used to say, did you pay this? Did you pay this? I was very acutely aware of the finances because not only would I then essentially be bankrupt, but it would destroy my credit for the rest of my life. Um, you know, there was a finite amount. At some point, I remember sitting down and saying like, oh, every internet company has to have Diet Coke and free snacks. What if we cut all the free snacks? And we ran the numbers, and it bought us like 27 more hours of runway. And I was just like, you know, what's the point? People like free soda, and, you know, a day isn't going to matter, uh, ultimately. Um, we did make some personnel cutbacks. But, you know, when you're a 90-person company, unless you literally do something completely drastic, uh, it's really hard to extend the runway. And, and several people said you should just lay off everyone but 10 people. You know, and s subsequently we would have released the game with 10 people and we would have just – it would have never happened. So I think we would just thought, like, let's just give it our best shot and jump yeah. off the cliff and see what happens. So – so you're talking about seeing those numbers just go crazy. I mean, was the company just at like an odd standstill because just watching the numbers or were people frantically trying to keep up? I, I uh, think both. I think it was so uh, it was so shocking how big it was. And I think, you know, in the end there, I think there was something like 10 billion drawings made or something like that. And I think for me... You know, I'm a big subway rider, and I love riding the subway because I like looking at other people's phones. I constantly look at what they're doing on their phones, what's on their home screen. It's like an amazing source of research and data. 
And I just had gotten it in my head, like, I just want to make something that for one time I can see someone using on the phone and think, oh, we made that thing. And that became like the mantra to the company. And I remember this guy was coming in from New Jersey and he emailed me and he said, the person in front of me is playing our game on their phone. I saw it. And I was, and then everyone around the company started saying, I was at dinner and I saw these people and I was thinking, why haven't I seen them? Like that was the one thing that I was looking for. And I went for a walk around Prospect Park with my son and I saw these two people on a bench and I walked over to them and he's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I think they might be playing that game that I made. He's like, you are insane. And I walked behind them and they were playing it and I tapped him on the shoulder and I said, I made that game. (laughs) And they looked at me like I was insane. And I thought, okay, well, whatever happens, at least I saw the one person play my game. So what were your kids' reactions to this? Um, I think, you know, they... I think it was a little, probably a little hard to process and a little surprising. And I think people at school were surprised. Um, but the honest answer is I think that if you're a kid, you want to know your parent is your parent, not as this other entity that exists, you know, in the press and the media around all of this stuff. So, you know, they got to meet Ryan Seacrest and, you know, there were, there were various perks. Uh, ultimately, in the end, they told me that they really played real games, not like the game that I made, since there was no shooting in my game. So, well, they couldn't like that game. No, exactly, exactly. So, how long was it uh, between, you know, seeing that ticker count up and then making the decision to sell the company and actually going through with it? I mean, the crazy thing is, it was. I think we released the game on February eighth. And I think we sold the company literally probably six or seven weeks later. Um, And in part, you know, the game was just, it was gigantic. I mean, at its height, it was making, you know, a million dollars a day. It had, you know, 25 million users. And one of the things that happened was that all those people who had been playing other games were playing our game. And so all of those companies who made other popular games saw their numbers go down, and they were all in the business of continually having their numbers go up. Um, And uh, it happened to coincide with GDC, which is a Game Developers Conference, which is a giant collection of nerds in San Francisco. And so we happened to be there when our game was number one on every single platform and everyone else in the game business was there. And, you know, we, it just ended up kind of accelerating from there and us having multiple offers for the company. And I remember I sat down with some of the original guys who I sat in that tiny room above the uh, Dunkin' Donuts Taco Bell. And I said, what do you guys want to do? And they were like, sell. You know, they were like, look, we've been at it for five years. Nobody's had a raise. We haven't done anything else. Like, this is our opportunity. And, you know, I was, you know, I was in part responsible to the investors, but in part responsible to the people who had made the game. And it just seemed like that was our moment. And I think in retrospect, a lot of the, you know, credit and excitement is focused on the development of this game that was really big. But I I think a lot of what really happened that was magical was these folks and me and the board just taking advantage of that moment when it existed in time to its maximum extent, which was difficult but very exciting. 
And so now you've you you moved on to William Morris, and then and then to and then you've started Tally. Yes. And and you took some of your team members with you from yes. OMG Pop. Are you able to create the same kind of environment there? Yes. So I worked for Zynga for one year uh, after we sold the company, and then. I ended up meeting uh, Ari Emanuel, who's the co-CEO of William Morris Endeavor, and he, uh, through his magic, convinced me that uh, I should bring my interest in technology to do what they do, and it's actually been an incredibly fun experience. And one of the things that I get to do is is make things, and uh, it's got you know an amazing side, and it's got a challenging side. The challenging side is like, just because you made something that you know 250 million people downloaded doesn't mean that like one person in the world cares about the next thing that you've made and so uh, it's you know and in fact it's actually a much it's a very competitive environment I mean I think there's like a thousand games released every day in the app store uh, and stuff like that the flip side is that I do get to work with a small group of people who I worked with previously and uh, you know we have a great working relationship and I think, uh, you know, we get to have ideas and try to put them out in the world and, and see what happens. Any advice for other people setting off on their path? Uh, in general, in entrepreneurship? Yeah, in entrepreneurship. I think that, uh, you know, one of the best, there's a couple characteristics, I think. I think the most successful people are incredibly relentless. I think that, you know, we're on our kind of second iteration of Tally where we've really focused on a different market. And I think, you know, you make something and you have no idea whether people are going to want it or like it. But if you stick with it long enough and you're also willing to listen to people and learn, you will eventually find that market and that fit. But it takes an incredible amount of, of dedication and incredible amount of focus. Um, I think... General entrepreneurship tips, which I rarely follow myself but seem to be good, are, you know, uh, certainly making things that decreases people's pain is a very positive thing. We all love Netflix and we love streaming, but we forget that, like, the reason Netflix came into existence is because people forgot to return videotapes, and that was so painful to people that they they paid a different price not to have that pain. I think certainly what's exciting about technology is creating things that never existed before, but you know you can certainly hedge your bets by taking advantage of people's behavior that they already do and making it better. I think Instagram's a great example of that. Didn't have to teach anyone how to take a photograph. People already had that behavior, just improved that behavior. And so I think if you think a lot about kind of why the companies succeed that do succeed as opposed to copying them, think about how they position themselves in the marketplace and what their experience was. I think you can, you know, you can over time gradually internalize some of these uh, some of these lessons. And the final thing I would say is like the most amazing thing about like making this huge game that was number one and selling it was literally reading all of this stuff in the press about why we were successful and about the company. And the reality is of it was that ninety nine percent of it was false. And I had built up what I thought was this incredible knowledge base by reading about other companies that were successful and why they were successful. And I realized basically everything that I had read was BS because I'd read this stuff about us and I'd be like factually wrong. You know, the reasons we succeeded would be totally way off base. And I thought, oh, my God, all these people are reading this and then internalizing these lessons and they're not right. 
and the information is wrong. And it was a huge lesson to me to, you know, learn as much as I can about what goes on in the world, but take it all, obviously, with a grain of salt. Well, here they heard the truth. It's persevere until you get lucky. Exactly. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for being uh, our guest and a great supporter of the FA. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com.